0: Right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll, and it's all about the rock and roll today. We've got the 30th anniversary of Skid Row's classic self-titled debut album with founding members Dave, Snake, Savo, and Rachel Boland, my bros. But before we get to that, we get to my other bro, the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, uh, Chris Jericho, did you hear about the new movie? It's Duff McKagan, by the way. Hear about the new movie uh
1: stallone bruce willis and schwarzenegger gonna make about uh classical composers yeah uh stallone said uh, i'll be mozart and bruce willis said uh, i'll be Beethoven, and uh, schwarzenegger said uh well in that case i'll be back thank you very much goodbye
0: <laughs> that is a good one that is a Duff classic i wonder how long it took for him to come up with that one actually he told me on the sly that uh, he actually if you ever heard him on Talk is Jericho a couple years ago, that him and Axel Rose exchanged these jokes uh, on stage and uh, personally. So some of these might even be Axl Rose uh, jokes. So. And no coincidence that we talked about Bach, considering we're talking about Sebastian Bach with Skid Row on the 30th anniversary of their classic debut record. And speaking of classics, it was a classic Duff joke. Gotta love Duff for sending them out to us every week without fail. And I want you to go see the Tenderness Tour when it returns to the States September 25th. Duffonline.com is all the ticket info. A good friend, Dan Shinsky, went and saw him at the Islington Academy in London uh, last week and said that Duff was amazing. Shooter Jennings was amazing. A little bit of a different pace for Duff. It's not kick-ass rock and roll. It's very kick-ass inspirational music, internal music, singer-songwriter type music. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. Duffonline.com for all ticket info and uh, you're going to enjoy Skid Row live as well, starting some dates on September 25th. Dave Snake Sabo and Rachel Boland and the guys will be in Lubbock, Texas. They're doing the Rock Out Cancer in Louisville, Kentucky on October 4th. Uh, rock in Cue on the Plains on October 18th, and then they're heading to Europe in November. Get your tickets at Skidrow.com. Skidrow's Skid Row's also working on a new album with longtime producer Michael Wagner. He also did the uh, original debut record back in 1989. We'll hear all about that and the relationship uh, that they've had for years. Coming up from Snake and Rach, as we talk about the 30th anniversary of the band's self-titled classic debut record, Youth Gone Wild, I Remember You, uh, Piece of Me, Uh, 18 in Life, so many great tunes. We leave nothing uncovered from the songwriting, the recording, the artwork on the cover, the role that John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora played in Skid Row's career, which is very monumental. I did not know that. So we'll get to Snake and Rachel on the Skype line right now. Here we go. Skid Row, 30th anniversary begins now.
2: Hello. Hello. What's happening? How you doing, man? you hear me all right? Can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you cool, great.
0: Cool. I'm just going to add uh, Mr. B here, and we should be all also-
1: set. All right.
0: <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Where? Hey, Rach. What up, man? What's up, dude? <laughs> all right. This is great, man. It's nice to uh, have you guys on. And we actually figured out the Skype, so we're actually uh, high-tech rock and rollers today. Look at us go. I know. Look at us go. Listen, we could have a stupid um, uh, small talk bullshit, but let's just let's just talk about about what we want to talk about today, which is every uh, once in a while you get a record that comes out that's very uh, influential. It's monumental. Uh, This record is not one of them. But it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I couldn't <do> more.
0: <laughs> No, seriously, the, the, it's the 30th year anniversary uh, of the very first Skid Row record, and I'm sure you guys feel it too. It's, it's one of those things where you're like, "Holy shit!" Like I remember when this record came out. I can't believe it's been 30 years already since 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 the release. Does it feel strange for you guys?
2: Man, yes, it does. It feels really strange. It's uh, when you're when you're. Putting a band together, you're just hope to to make it to the next gig, and hopefully, you know, you get an opportunity to to release the music that you you help create. And while we all have lofty ambitions, the reality is is that a lot of bands fall by the wayside and and you know, last for a little while, then fizzle out. And for us, we just wanted the opportunity to make a record and then sell enough records to have the opportunity to make another one i mean we all like i said had these uh desires to be successful but we really just wanted the opportunity to make music for a living Mm -hmm. and for so for to exist 30 years later still in in the the consciousness of the public is is very very humbling
1: yeah it was one of those things you know you you dream of this happening your whole life because i mean snake and i were of the same mindset even before we knew each other we knew we were on a collision course with playing music for the rest of our lives now you know you're cocky and and yep i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this and then you come out with an album or your first record that stands the test of time you know what i mean and and mm for just to look back i mean whenever anyone over the past year or so anyone's saying wow man your first album came out 30 years ago i honestly dude i didn't even know i was going to make it to 30 (laughs) exactly (laughs) because we were in our young i mean early 20s when we wrote it and you know we knew we liked it and then we started playing clubs and other people started liking it and then uh everything just happened so fast and all of a sudden, boom, 30 years later, here we are. And, and people are actually celebrating the record. Uh, it's, it's an amazing feeling to be able to do that. And the the more I see it, the, the it's a rare occurrence, you know what I mean? Where people actually still like you after 30 years. Yeah, I know. And
0: not to mention where you guys have like, you know, we'll talk about the whole record because it is, I have a, a I've done a show before, with the guys from Revenge Sevenfold. And, and we, it was called The Perfect Album. And what constitutes a perfect album? Every song has to be an A minus or better, according to whoever's listening to it. And this is one of those perfect records where every oh, wow. song on here, to me, is A minus or, or better pretty much across the board. And it's funny that the fact you guys wrote this in your early 20s. It always amazed me when you talk about the Beatles and the Stones or Metallica doing, you know, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets. And here you guys are. I don't know how old you were, twenty three, twenty four, writing these tunes that still, like you said, the, the, anybody that grew up in that era knows Youth Gone Wild and knows I Remember You and knows 18 in Life. It still plays them to this day. And you were just kids when you wrote them.
2: Well, no one could predict what's going to connect with an audience. Mm-hmm. So like with us, with Rachel and I, we just were connecting with each other. And so when we started first writing together, we didn't know each other all that well. So we were still finding our way we were sort of navigating this this friendship that's grown to be like best friends over the course of time. And we met in like late 85 at the music store in Tom's River, where <laughs> Rachel's hometown. We just saw, I think we saw kindred spirit in each other. Uh, but you don't know until you get in that room and you shut the door and you got two guitars and you go, okay, here's an idea. Or, and, or what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And then all of a sudden you start creating something And you've never had that feeling before of of what's starting to happen. And you don't even know what it is. You just Mm. know that it's something really good. And then, not that the first songs we ever wrote were really good, but it was the experience of being able to connect with another person who was of the same mindset and had the same aspirations and the same ambition and the same work ethic. And so you're going, holy crap, man, Like, there's something here. And let's keep pursuing this. And it was really rewarding and we were still working, you know, two jobs and we were struggling financially as individuals, as young adults. But there was this exuberance that was going on whenever we got together. And then we started just putting the pieces of, of, of the band together to surround us with people who had the same sort of ambition and work ethic. And, and but we had our we had a goals set in mind. And But the biggest thing is you want to connect with people. You want people to hopefully get what it is that you're uh, emoting. So we were, it was always a very honest and pure uh, pathway for us. We weren't trying to be anybody else. We just wanted to express ourselves because it was the only way that knew, we knew how.
1: Yeah, Vic was the first guy I ever wrote with. I mean, I always wrote songs by myself. And we got into a room and I wasn't sure how it was going to go. And also we just, I remember there was this one song called Telephone. I could sing yep. it a chorus right now. And it was, it just, it just came out and I was like, wow, this is a really cool song. It didn't make the the a record, but it was still, it was such a strong start for us as songwriting partners that to this day, I remember the song. I could write the lyrics down right now, and <laughs> it was one of those things. And I knew that I was like, "Wow, if this is our first shot. What is going to come out next?" You know, that's what I mean? true. I felt the same way.
0: I love the fact you guys said you met at the record store. What what a lost uh, era of music you, store! You could go. No, it was to- a
2: music store. We sold we we sold uh, music instruments, and and uh, gotcha. He Rachel would come in. I started working down there because no one, this is true, no one would hire me up in my town of and or the area around there unless it was a warehouse gig. And But anything else, I had to cut my hair. I was like, there's no way. <laughs> and so through, through various channels, I got a job at uh, Garden State Music in Tom's River, which was about an hour and 20 minutes from where I lived. And I had to take a couple – buses to get down there because i didn't have a license it was suspended whatever <laughs> so <laughs> i started working there and i started working in like the back room the storage room and i started doing inventories and mail order stuff and i graduated up front and i used to see rachel walk in and he just you could just sense that this guy was a rock star like mm-hmm. he just had an aura about him the way he held himself the way he looked the clothes that he wore he's very you know he was just stood out in a room full of people you would you would focus on him and i was like i was never really shy about going up and introducing myself to people and and throwing a load of garbage at them just to prop (laughs) my own self up but it's true and my back from picking up all
1: the names he dropped
2: yeah my my back still hurts (laughs) (laughs) no but he was a star and and so i was like man I, i need you know, one of the things that I, I I was taught was that you always align yourself with people who are better at what you do than you are mm-hmm. and I didn't know what he did I think one of my friends Ed who was a mutual friend said oh yeah he's a bass player with this band godsend and I was like oh man I gotta get to know this guy and so shook up a conversation it was funny and friendly and uh it, it start it just went from there and and just the fact that you know, I lived so far away and came to work at this music store in his hometown and uh, the music store that he would go to. Like it was his music store. It's just it's so bizarre and just it's serendipitous. You know, it's just it was meant to happen. And, and
1: what's crazy is just because of that, that he came down, I go, oh, this guy's going to work as hard as I like to work for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're we're going to get along really good because I saw that. I was like, man. It, If he he gets on two buses and comes two hours down to work just so he could be in a band, I want to be in a band with this guy. (laughs) (laughs) The guitar player was in my band at the time.
0: But but that's and that's the thing too. Like you you always get those kindred spirits, and it's it's the eternal story of rock and roll of the fateful meetings between you know Mick and Keith at the bus station, or you know Paul and and John, or Gene Gene and Paul, and you know Stephen and Joe. And so it's like you said, it was meant to be. Now usually it's the singer and the guitar player. This time it's the guitar player and the bass player. Who of course you guys wrote all the tunes anyway. So that's the crux of Skid Row then, and it always is up until this day.
2: Yeah, and it's pretty amazing because. To still to maintain a band for thirty years is just it was beyond our, our scope of belief. But what's even more amazing is that you when you not only do you remain friends with the guy that you started the band with, but your relationship has gotten stronger through the years. And and it's really funny because no matter what, no matter where we've gone with this band and and what we've done uh, outside of it. The one thing that you could always count on with the two of us is that we always have each other's back. Right. And I'll tell you what, man, as you, as you grow older, you understand the value of that, and you can't put a price on it, because it really is like, man, you know, I, I, there's been a lot of tough times for everybody, and, and but it makes it easier when you know you got the other guy that you're always going to be able to lean on no matter what. I mean, no matter what. Mm. And there's been a lot of what's.
0: Speaking of leaning on, like, I know in the early days, there was a a real close connection with you and and John Bon Jovi. Did you guys grow up together?
2: Yeah. We grew up um, like three streets away from each other in a little town called Sareville, New Jersey. That's amazing. Um, I I was going to visit a friend of mine that lived across the street from him. I was about 10 years old, 11 years old, and he was playing basketball in his front yard with his gross blue basketball. It was ridiculous. And... (laughs) it so, sort of exemplifies what his current fashion choices are. <laughs> he's, so, so I basically was this little cocky kid who was really good at basketball. I'm Like, Hey, you want to play one-on-one? He's like, yeah, he's a couple years older than me. And, and we played one-on-one and we became friends from that mo- point forward and have remained friends to this day. I mean, we just got done doing two shows with, with those guys in, in Austria and these, the, these incredible stadiums. And, you know, Forty-four years later, we're still buds, and that just says a lot for who you know the the manner in which we grew up and how we were all raised, and uh just the value of, of what a friendship is. And it tells you how much
1: pain we can endure. No,
2: sorry. yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> what
0: well, must have been? Good. It must have been hard for you too, Snake, hanging out with Bon Jovi because he's so hot, and you're like not.
2: Well. <laughs> The truth of the matter is, is, is that you're absolutely right. But but it's my, it's my charm that gets me to the ladies.
0: Yeah. Did <laughs> you, yeah. did, because uh, Bon Jovi helped you out quite a bit. Did he help you get a record deal? Cause I think their band took off three or four years before Skid Row did.
1: Yeah. 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 Ahead, yeah him and Richie were, were, uh, you know, they were champions for us, man. They, they, um, they helped us out a lot like a lot lot. We just kind of like okay look at things this way when you're writing this song because we you know we, we knew what we wanted and and we knew that we must have been doing something good for those guys to be that interested in us yeah. and but yeah they, they introduced us to a lot of people they got us in front of a lot of people and uh yeah man they they had a big part and uh, i know we delivered the goods as well but yeah, they, they they had a big part in helping us out, helping us get to the people that we needed to get our music to for sure.
2: They were great coaches. They mm-hmm. would, we would throw everything at them that we were writing, and they were great coaches because they pushed us. They were like, "This is good, but it ain't great yet. Go make it great." <laughs> yeah, and it was. I gotta admit, and Rachel will test this as well. It was frustrating for us at times because. They set the bar really, really high. And I look back on that, and I'm sure Rachel does too, and go, thank God for that. And I don't think there's enough of that in today's music where you're being really, really put to the test and you have to grow as a writer and you have to reach loftier heights. And they pushed us like you would not believe. Like, it's almost there, but it's not there. Go back in the room and do it. And we would get. we would sit there. Our days consisted of... Going to work at the music store or whatever other job that we had, um, going and then going back to Rachel's parents' house and getting in the green room, which is what we called it because it had green paneling in it, and green paneling, green carpet, everything was green. (laughs) Working until working until all hours of the night, and then you know, oftentimes five, six in the morning and then getting up at 8:30 to go into the work again and then bringing the songs to John and Richie and them going okay that's there you go like and now and then all of a sudden you go oh my gosh okay there's a little light at the end of the tunnel now we're you know and doc mcgee as well and it was doc who got uh, you know who was dealing with the record labels once that we had all the pieces of the puzzle together but it was john and richie uh, who were who were really great unbelievable coaches and really yeah.
1: And they were such hard workers themselves that they instilled that in us. I mean, we, we kind of had that in our wiring anyway, because of the, how, how we were taught and and raised that like my old man used to say, never be afraid of hard work. So that was already in me and it was in snake from his mom. And so we applied that to songwriting and just, okay, man, if you're in this, you have to be in this 100%, you know? And mm-hmm that's the, we still, to this day, that's, that's the way we think. It's like, don't go into anything half-assed or it's just going to come out half-assed, you know? It's very much a,
0: it's a Jersey attitude, right? Kind of hardworking blue collar state.
1: Yeah, it it is. It is. And a lot of people up there are just like the the drive and ambition to do whatever it is that you're, you're setting out to do. It just, yeah, it's just kind of that way.
0: Did you guys ever run into to to Zach Wilde at that point in time? Because I know he was playing in Jersey too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Gosh, yeah,
0: yeah. Just because a lot of of he
2: used to come in. He used to come in the music store, (laughs) and he was he was such a shy eighteen year old kid, and he was playing in in a band called Zyrus, which was predominantly like a not a a top kind of a top forty band, more more in the lines of doing covers by Journey and Sticks Mm -hmm. and bands like that. Yeah, when, when Top Forty had, had
1: cool stuff, on
0: yeah. it. right,
2: right, and then he break into a guitar solo in the middle of of, of the show, <laughs> and he's just again, he's he was like he is not the person that he is today. I mean, he's like so vibrant and you know full of life and just outrageous and stuff today. Back then, he wasn't. He was almost the, the polar opposite but he would break into this solo and you'd be like what am I watching like it was so obvious that this guy was going to do great. I remember he came first time he came in the music store he's like all like kind of quiet and stuff he's like can I grab a guitar off the wall? I was like yeah, of course, man. Didn't know him. <laughs> and he grabs like a, a like a Les Paul off, and just starts playing these 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 riffs I'm going, whoa. What's going on? Then he puts that away. And he goes, can I trip me out, know, take that nylon string off. and starts playing classical guitar and I'm like, what is happening right now? (laughs) And then I was so full of myself that I thought I was better than anybody in that area. Like, and I'm the new kid on a block. And this guy put me in my place so fast. (laughs) And then he goes in the back and starts playing piano. I'm like, oh, stop it already. You know, like for real.
0: He's one of those guys like Stuart Copeland said about Sting. He should have been drowned at birth.
2: Oh my gosh! I, you have no idea how many times I wanted to break his hands. I mean, I couldn't. Oh. So let's
0: talk about the people I, I, instrumental in getting you guys th- this deal because we're, we're still talking about the the first record. Now you mentioned Doc McGee. Was he managing you before you had the record deal?
2: Yes, he was. Obviously, he was managing John at the time, and and so we're over at John's house, and we're we're getting to the point where we think we're we're pretty close to you know, having the whole record written. We wrote like, I don't know, 20-some-odd songs and we were continually writing. So Rachel and I are at John's house and Doc is there. And then all of a sudden, we're just chilling out and Doc comes over and starts going out of nowhere, starts going, "Go, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And we're sitting there looking at him. And we're like, okay, okay, okay. And then he goes, okay, cool, and walks away. And Rachel and I look at each other and go... I- is he managing us now? <laughs> it was never
1: like a definite, yeah, okay, I'll manage you guys. It was, just, all right. And, and we're driving home back to my house, my parents' house, and we're like, D- is, yeah, is Doc McGee our manager? Are we were at McGee Entertainment. What is going on here? There was never anything said. It was the weirdest weirdest situation <laughs> ever.
0: And Doc obviously huge at the time, managing Motley Crue and the Scorpions and Bon Jovi, and now he's got you guys as well. So that was a huge coup to be with him.
2: It was Oh my gosh. It was we We were, I think we were, we were awestruck by, by the whole thing. And it, it was, it's so foreign because as Rachel stated earlier, you, you, you know, we grew up in these working class communities and, you know, the, the, the furthest that you've ever traveled is, you know, to the bar down the street, you hmm. know, to hang out with your buds. <laughs> and, just this whole world was opening up in front of us, and, and it was so exhilarating, man. And and we were taking it all in, and it, it did not get lost on us at any point. We were really, really, uh, like I said, awestruck by the moment, and, and there were a lot of moments. And so when we realized, when finally we realized that we were being managed by Doc, I think it really, the, the light bulb went on, and we were like, this, this is for real. Like, this is really happening and uh, I'll never forget
1: what he said. He goes, uh, so if you want out of this, draw a warm bath and
0: get a nice dust with your blade. That's and I was is this guy a manager? <laughs> Let's talk about the, the missing piece of the time, you know, whatever has gone on in, in the last few you know, years or whatever. At the time, Sebastian, when you got him, great singer, and I used to say he was like genetically created in a lab to be a rock star, just the way he looked and, and all that sort of stuff. Because you, at this point in time, you had another singer, right? Yeah, guy by the name of Matt, also ex-singer of Anthrax. Yes,
2: yeah, very. He, good.
0: he sang with them for a time. Yeah. P- poor Matt. It'd be like if Pete Best. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be like if Pete Best was the drummer of the Beatles and the Stones.
2: <laughs> oh my God! I never really thought about that. Oh, my Poor God. guy.
0: But how did you? How did Sebastian come on your radar? And, and how did you decide that you needed to get another singer? Because that's a big. That's a big change to make for for a young band.
1: There, there was a couple factors. I mean, we once we knew we were getting rid of Matt, we just started auditioning people and getting tapes. And John helped us with that. He. Uh, mentioned something in metal edge magazine and to send tapes and boy, did we get a ton of them. And (laughs) I don't think we ever really auditioned any of them from the tapes because it was some of the craziest shit that we ever heard. But um, (laughs) there were were some guys that were supposed to audition and, you know, uh, didn't make it down. And um, we've been looking for about nine months. We actually auditioned, I think we auditioned less than 10 people, but, it was just over a really long span. And then someone told us about Sebastian and we were at the point where we're like, okay, let's he look cool. Let's get him down here and check him out. And to be honest, the audition did not go well. We were yeah. like Yeah, we were like, whoa, this thing's way too high. Mm. <laughs> we like his attitude now. Um, we, we uh yeah, but he sings way too high. We got to get him back into the stratosphere, you know what I mean? And uh then we went and we got up and jammed a couple songs just at the local club, this place called Mingles, and that went decent. Um, and yeah, so then then uh yeah, then we decided to to keep him in the band. But, you know, <laughs> every time I see him, he's like, "Why did I not come to the audition?" John Karabi. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No keys. To this day he's like, yeah, that was a good idea. Me not me blowing off the audition with you guys. <laughs> Did he blow it off?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yep. I had known I had known John from Philadelphia right before he moved to LA. And so when uh we started Rachel and I started putting this together, he was one of the guys that was still on the radar. And so yeah, we reached out to him and he was like, blew it off.
0: Did you ever reach out to him over the past few years when you had different singers
2: coming in? You know what? No, we didn't. No, he was always. I mean, he was always in
1: doing something. Gotcha. You know.
2: So let's talk. And you know what's interesting too. Wait, Chris, real quick. Yeah. You know what's interesting too about the thing with with Matt, our original singer, was that we had gone out for three shows at the beginning of the Bon Jovi Slippery One Wet" Tour with, with Matt and the band. Oh, really? And, we mm-hmm. yeah, we did a couple shows, or three shows in Pennsylvania right before Cinderella joined the tour. And so we played those three shows, and Doc McGee came into the dressing room after the first or second show and just went, band looks great, the band sounds great, the songs are great, singers got to go. Wow. And that's what happened.
0: That was it. That that. So
2: so think about that though. So you you're out there playing in front of, you know, seven to ten thousand people, sold out, and people are responding to you. So you think you're you're really on on the verge of of this really happening, and then all of a sudden it's like the guy who's in the know and knows more than us comes back and says that, and it was tough, man. It was tough, and then then to go nine months in search of someone wow. to fit the bill. And I mean, there was a point, Rachel. You remember this? We were gonna just go out and start playing as a four-piece of punk band and call it "This Blows," <laughs> <laughs> because because it did. It sucked. It was and so, so we frustrating. This Blows. Rachel was gonna sing. We were gonna do like Ramones and Pistols and dead boys and stuff like that
0: but people don't realize it's so hard to find the right singer i mean especially when when you're told to find a new one the guys that don't grow on trees because once again it's not just the vocal it's the look it's the attitude it's the phrasing it's it's the front man skills which are so hard as well so it's not an easy task
2: no it certainly is not but you know what at at that particular time you know we all figured it out thank god
0: Let's, yeah let's talk a little bit about, about jason Flom because i think he falls to the cracks especially this day and age when when you know jason was an R guy which basically means he finds and signs bands and he had such a track record um i'm just googled him here for Tori amos twisted sister white lion stone Temple pilots jewel hooting the blowfish collective soul he kind of uh he's the one who signed you guys to atlantic
1: yes him and our good friend dorothy Dorothy Carvello, she um, she was instrumental. Um, as was Jason to uh, convince Ahmet and Tunj and Doug and all those guys that we were suited for that label. And thank God we went with Atlantic because we were signed to Geffen. Yep. But the ink wasn't to paper yet. And then in the eleventh hour, Jason came in uh, with the offer from Atlantic, and it just we were bummed believe it or not when they came in and when doc told us okay you're signed to get your we're signing with geffen we were like uh we did a showcase for him and the producers that they brought in and the a&r guy scrapped all of our songs except for two and we played 30 songs for him wow
2: um all yeah, the, dude. i should say all the songs
1: that are on the first record
2: yeah 18 life youth come wild i remember you all the songs they yeah.
0: of them strapped
1: Yep. Yep. And then they wanted these really pop poppy metal songs that we had written that Snake and I didn't even want to play, but our day-to-day guy our manager at the time said play everything. And we were like and we're like, we don't want to play these f- songs for the rest of our lives, you know? Right. Yep. And uh, so they came in and yep, scrapped most of what's on the first record and then loved all the poppier ones that we didn't like. And so right then it dawned on us. It's like, okay, Geffen wants a popular metal band, like in the, the vein of Bon Jovi. Atlantic wants a dirtier metal band in the vein of Guns and Roses, each of which neither one. Has. So when Atlantic came in, It was like, oh, thank God. You know what I mean? Yeah. They had been courting us for a while. Jason put in a lot of time. Dorothy put in a ton of time and went to bat for us at the office. And it was the right place to be. Just all things considered, making the band happy. And as hard as those two worked at getting us there, it was just the right place to be.
2: We uh, like They were were, both labels were coming to our shows in, in New Jersey and New York. And... We were rehearsing at Rachel's parents' house in the garage, and we get the phone call from Doc, and like Rachel said, he said, Geffen, and we all looked at each other like, oh, no, man, this is a bad move. And so he he realized, like, we had so many reasons why, as Rachel stated, and plus they were an L.A. label. And, they, you know, it was so funny because the A&R person said to us, well, where do you guys rehearse? And we were like, Tom's River, New Jersey. He's like, well, you'll never see me down there. We're like, yeah, we did." A- <laughs> <laughs> Way to really be into what we're doing, man. And, yeah. Uh, the Dorothy and Jason were the, the polar opposites to that. And and they they were everywhere. Even when they found out that we were gonna be signing with Geffen, they still showed up at the show. And that's when we were like we've uh, this happened like a week later or two weeks later after we were told about Geffen that Doc called us back and said, Okay, we're gonna do it with Atlantic. That
1: was in Studio One, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it, it was one of our worst shows ever, and here we have the two labels that are wanting to sign us, and we were horrible, and we got off stage, and everyone's in the dressing room just looking at the floor, not wanting to make eye contact with us. We're like, oh my God, we just blew everything, you know what I mean? But uh, a-,
0: a bad show for you was a good show for them because they'd never seen you before. Possibly. You know, because that's the thing too. You're talking about like because when we go through the songs, you know, can't stand the heartache's a little bit of a popular tune, but Skid Row was always. I remember how 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 not shocked, but when Slaved to the Grind came out, how heavy and fast it was. But you can see that those fingerprints all throughout Skid Row. You guys were always much more of a heavy, heavier priest out al- uh, type vibe than a than a Bon Jovi poison.
1: I agree. Without, yeah I mean with with snake's musical background and my musical background I think it all came into into those songs you know because we both did grow up listening to british pop and and stuff like that and but he was the metal guy snake was the the British metal and and I was the punk guy punk you know man. what I mean I, I think the the common thread was the the 60s and 70s pop, but all that other stuff just kind of engulfed it, you know, the metal and the punk. And I, I think that that was the formula to that first record. But yeah, I believe the fingerprint was there to set up Slave for sure. And at that point, we're like, well, we could we could take a little a, a couple liberties here, which we did, and, <laughs> and decreased our album sales by at least half. <laughs> <But what else? laughs> Less chick showed up for the show. That's for damn sure. <laughs>
0: When, let's talk about when you guys recorded the record. Um, when, you're, when you're doing something like this, and people always ask me a question about some of the bigger songs that we've had. Did you know that the song was going to be a hit? Did you know that Youth Gone Wild was going to be a hit or, or 18 in Life? Considering that the, the other label wanted to scrap them, when you're doing them, are they just another day at work or do you realize there's something special about some of these tunes?
2: I don't think that we thought anything was going to be a quote-unquote hit. We just knew that there was there were certain things that were obviously standing out for us as musicians and songwriters and as a band. Uh, but you know it's funny because you have all these different opinions coming in. I mean, you know, originally it was supposed to be big guns was supposed to be the first single mm. and I remember there was we we were like felt weird about that and. I mean, "Youth Gone Wild" was the an, an obvious statement. It was it it was the first thing that you listen to, and you go, "Okay, I know what this band is about." Mm. And so, luckily, you know, uh, better heads prevailed, and and we we went with "Youth Gone Wild," and that told completely set the tone for the record. But then, you know, you got a song like like "I Remember You," and so the label goes you know, after Youth Gone Wild started losing some legs and you need to come out with something next, the label's like, okay, I remember you. It's the obvious choice. And we're like, no, yeah. no. And I'll never forget, we were in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And we were on the phone with our management and Jason Flum. And we were like, it's gotta be 18 in life. Next, it's, it can't be "I Remember You" because there's nowhere to go after "I Remember You." And This might be the difference between an album lasting nine months or an mm-hmm. album lasting two years, and we we need longevity here. We're gonna, you know, we're on tour with Bon Jovi, we're in front of sold-out audiences every night. We're gonna get more tours coming our way because of the exposure we're getting and the amount of records that we're selling with "Youth Gone Wild" as a single. And luckily, they listened to us, and that was completely an idea that came from our side of the camp that was not a record label idea we had to sit there and fight for that and, and deep, the, it, go ahead rich
1: uh the one that fought the hardest was richie Simbor. he was like this has to be it and he said the same thing and i'll never forget what our manager said you know remember snake i don't know refresh my memory you know at least a second you could kiss your career goodbye <laughs> oh like, my gosh and, and that's when richie came up to bat and he's like nope nope He's like, you, you can't go with I Remember You, go with 18 in Life, and, and we were just like, oh, thank God, someone is on our side with this, you know?
0: No, why Why are you guys saying that I Remember You would have been the end of the record?
2: It was more like a final statement of what the album would be. It's it just, given the culture of, of that particular time, the, where music was, and, and especially for the area that we sat, mm. um, it just, it didn't, 18 in Life or anything coming after I Remember You seemed like it just wouldn't work. It, that seemed like what would be, at least to us, the, what would be the final statement of the record. And um, it, it just that made was
1: sense. pretty much the formula that every yes. other metal, pop metal band was doing at the time and you'd never hear another song after it. They tried, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, take hold. So we were really worried. We're like, okay, let's, so the logical thought was they want something slow let's go with 18 in life it has a great story behind it we can make a killer video and you know
0: because you're right it, yeah, that, it, that, that was always the, the 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 pattern you'd have the rocker would be the first single and then the ballad would be the second single yeah right. it, was, it was hard to come back from that unless you had a huge record label push behind you as an established mm-hmm. band maybe
1: yeah and it, it worked it, it, it worked and you know, made us think we were smart and knew what we were doing.
0: <laughs> hey, let, let me use a line from one of your videos. If you think you stink,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. but that's the thing. 18 in Life" is such a different song, too. Very interesting for 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 that time frame because it's it starts out ballad, but it gets really heavy and it's so it like you said, it kind of falls somewhere in the middle between rocker and ballad,
1: right? And it has it has kind of a deep story to it, and and it resonated with a lot of people like maybe not literally, but I've had so many people tell me like, man, that's song got me through some really bad shit or, you know, I was contemplating doing really bad things to myself until, uh, I heard this song and, and, uh, yeah, still to this day, I still do you
0: know, that. When it came awesome. out, a couple of things I was gonna say. First of all, when Youth Gone Wild came out, I remember I used to go to this this little local bar in Winnipeg called Georgie's for a 35 cent draft night. Oh. <laughs> yeah, imagine how quality that draft was. But oh, I love it. I remember um, when Youth Gone Wild came out because they would play. You know, they played at Georgie's and everyone was just headbanging and just going crazy and throwing glasses against the wall like (laughs) it had such energy to it that a lot of a lot of bands didn't have there was a real rebelliousness to it and being a youth at that point it really it really resonated with with me and all my friends everyone in town was talking about skid row at that time
2: wow that's really cool man that's really cool thank you
0: and when, it, when the single came out, did you guys get the same vibe from everywhere? I mean, it was a pretty big hit right out of the gate.
1: It uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was so weird, man. When it, it really took hold and, and was on the radio a lot, you'd just walk down the street or be doing something and you'd hear people just singing the chorus to you. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, that's really cool. Man. Yeah. <laughs> but we, you know man when we wrote it we were just kind of writing a story of ourselves you know and and not thinking that it would be commercially successful or that it would touch a nerve with so many people you know but i guess everyone's kind of living the same life in different places
2: mm-hmm. yeah we we were that was i mean if you can't get more straight from the from the soul of, of who we are than that and I remember being we were playing Summers on the Beach in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It was in February, and there was the first time like we're we were getting ready to do sound check, and we're standing around, and MTV was on, and the video came on, and it was like, holy crap, man! Like we're on MTV now. <laughs> this is amazing. Yes. And uh, and then you know what? MTV played a huge part, and because it gave us a platform to have visibility everywhere, and. And they were not shy in playing our, our that video. Thank God, because that combined with radio, combined with a sold-out tour that lasted nearly nine months or eight months, uh, it, we were just so fortunate. I mean, what what uh, you have all those three factors working in your favor, and we were fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time, and and you know a good amount of luck. To get Lake Lot too. It. Uh... <laughs> What's that? So it, helps you, it helped us get laid a lot Boy, you're not kidding
1: me You know, when you have a chick in your room It's 3 o'clock in the morning and you come on MTV Things just change All of a sudden she picks up the phone and calls friends And all that stuff yeah. That's you?
0: Oh my god <laughs> <laughs> What's the infu- What was the influence of, of Michael Wagner on the record? Because I just read an article And you might have probably heard about this Where he said that the first Skid Row record Is his all-time favorite album that he's ever worked on and this is the guy who worked on master of puppets and no more tears and you know uh, uh, docking records and all these classic albums alice cooper and except for, for what was his uh advice and 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 kind of influence on the record
2: just a tremendous influence he he became the overlord if you will and i say that as a compliment mm-hmm. um he was able to somehow corral these five uh, Over exuberant kids, children, together to make uh, a, a cohesive record. He has this ability with us, uh, still to this day, because we're working on our new record with him, to bring the best out of us from a performance standpoint, and and a, like a to to really grasp and pull our spirit out and get that documented and his fingerprints are all over that first record. I mean, he was without him, that first record would not be what it was. I can honestly say that he just was the right guy for us. We
1: met with so many different producers and we just did not like that produced a lot of albums that we really liked at the time and we just did not click with them and we didn't like their approach to what we wanted to do. And Jason flew Michael to um, Providence, Rhode Island, and we played this place. What was that place called? The Living Room. The Living Room. <laughs> and so we sat at a little table in the bar, and I believe it was Scott, Snake, myself, Jason, and Michael. And uh, Snake said, so what would your approach with this be? And he said, I want the band to be the band. And right then, yeah. Snake and I looked at each other and we like, this is a dude this is a guy yeah. hmm. i mean obviously his track record <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> but uh, it was stupid and, and so we were like oh this is the guy this is the guy we told scott that day let's let's start let's start this is what we need. This is the uh, this is the only person that will understand what we're trying to accomplish, and we were right.
0: Was there any other producers of name that you talked to? Because the famous story about uh, Paul Stanley being the first guy up for the for the Appetite for Destruction gig, and then of course that didn't work out. Was there anybody like that that came by? There, um,
1: John suggested Stephen Van Zandt. Really. Um, that's yeah, damn- he actually came to a few um, a few rehearsals, and he was just like, "They're not ready." But you know, I, uh, <laughs> we probably weren't <laughs> at the
2: right, time. Right, you know? right.
1: But yeah, we and a lot of guys like uh, and, and, and listen, all these people are great. They're great at work.
2: Oh, Max Norman was one, and we Max were like Norman, Rick Browdy, um, and there was
1: so many. We met with with quite a few. And, um, yeah, it just, it, we just didn't vibe and it was for nothing less of, we knew what we wanted, you know, and, and they all went on to make amazing records after after, you know, Skid <laughs> row record, but, uh, it, uh, yeah. Wagner just came in and it's like, we were so comfortable around him and he just, he, he was just literally not to sound cliche. He was the sixth member of the band. He just for knew sure. what we wanted and he knew, had to get the right performances out of us.
0: Thinking about the cover of the album, it's, it's it's really cool because once again, all jokes aside, you guys had a great look. Everybody had killer hair. And obviously you have you have Baz in the middle and Rachel's got the, the nose ring and the, there's some real attitude. But the cover of the record, it's got attitude, but you don't really see you guys. Was that a concept that you had? And, and how do you feel about the cover 30 years later?
1: Well, the Snake and I went into the art director because we had a whole bunch of photos. We had photos that Mark Weiss took, photos that,
2: um, I wanna say David Kennedy, is that
1: correct, Snake?
2: Yep, that was his name, that's the okay. one, that cover shot. Yeah,
1: because we, we really like the Georgia Satellites cover uh, of their, their record and we're like, let's do something with this guy, we wanna do it in an alley. So we did a bunch of stuff in the alley that mark weiss pad which was built and then there was an alley that was in um new york city which is the front cover and we went in and it wasn't really an alley it was just a parking lot entrance and it was so new and so clean i'm like this isn't an alley i, I, I said that. i go to the art director i forget his name but i go i I could find 10 alleys that are better than this in new jersey he goes i'm not going to new jersey Mm -hmm. and it's like wow okay so snake and i had all the photos and we went everyone approved they looked the photos and we had the pile of them and and we said okay and we had the back cover with snake in the middle and we're like here's the cover we want here's the back cover which is the front cover And being just being new and not having any clout, our director said nope. And we we were sent
0: it was switched around completely. (laughs) (laughs) That's always the way, right? Yeah. Uh, it fits though if it, it fits like you said that it's got some great attitude there and i also love how you mentioned mark weiss i saw him at the garden uh a couple months ago taking pictures for for kiss i love right. the 80s when even the photographers were were, were stars even yeah. fans knew the photographers were right
2: oh yeah. so many of them man And we had the pleasure of shooting with with so many of them i mean Eddie Malouk, and Mark Weiss, and Ebet Roberts, and William Hames, and Ross and uh, uh,
0: Neil Slozauer. Neil
2: Slozauer, Glenn (laughs) LaFerman. I mean, you know, we just saw Neil Neil on the Monsters of Rock cruise, and he's just the same guy. He's never changed, never wavered. No matter how successful or whatever he's been, he's still the same guy. I I think the world of that dude. And mostly all, all of them are. Ross Halpin still calls me the second ugliest man in rock and roll, and so. uh,
0: Who's the ugliest?
2: I forget who he said, but I was pissed. I was like, "Dude, I don't tell. I'm not second place, buddy. I want number
0: (laughs) one." Rachel, I have Snake in my phone listed as ugly. Michael Sweet. (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about the track listing here and if you have any uh fun stories or thoughts about each song uh i always like to do this i did it with duff on the appetite for destruction and like you mentioned kicking off with big guns still a great opening tune uh, a great opening tune for the set any any memories of that song
1: yeah we um we originally were gonna have something going on like uh do you remember that Cheech and Chong skit Sister Mary Elephant Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she's like class 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 wake up (laughs) thank you well we had we recorded this whole piece that was going to go before it that had uh, the Looney Tunes thing playing in the background you hear everyone just snoring and shit like that and Wagner come in come on you got to get it's time to record now time to make a record blah 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 and then he screams wake up and it goes bam so we did it i'm glad it didn't make it because now oh, it's nowadays it's really f- corny but um, <laughs> yeah, right the, the, here's at <laughs> that point we're like okay scott's like okay we got to get the licensing on the looney tunes theme and he comes back and goes yeah it's going to cost you guys about fifty thousand dollars a year to have that on they We're like <laughs> okay Straight into the big G chord, that's fine. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that was so, back then when everybody had a, some kind of an intro to your records, right? Yep. Yeah, it's, so, it's much better as is, for sure.
2: It, that would have been quite a bit different from like the intro to Number of the Beast. Probably like the, the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. The exact opposite of Battery.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Just looking at the songwriting here, it's the only song on the record that, uh, that all four of the musicians wrote. Um, including Rob Afuso. What was his contribution to the, to the song?
2: Good question. <laughs> Good question. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. sure. Maybe, maybe his name should just be removed because we can't remember.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be happy with that when the royalty checks start coming in. Stop yeah, coming in. No. Uh, great tune just i love the lyrics that you guys always wrote together too uh, Of sweet little sister she blew my mind behind the wrecking machine a shit little trouble called the subway queen like it's very dirty and definitely not your uh, action satisfaction type of lyrics
2: that's more rachel than, than me truth be told I mean, rachel throughout the history of this band has always been the better lyricist than me and um he's great with metaphors. He's really good, like, believe it or not, and I don't mean to embarrass him, but he's very good with with the English language, like, as far as how certain words go together, and, and it's really, it, it's wild. It's, it, and so, you know, where I'll be, my, a lyric that I may come up with will be very black and white. His is always really colorful. Uh, there's great imagery and uh, using a lot of metaphors, and um and creating a picture that's very vivid and so that those those sort of lyrics right there are, are very indicative of what he does as a lyricist
1: it, it's it's thank you snake it um we the song had a different title do you remember that snake? I don't. The chorus was rock, rock, rock. Rock, <sings> rock.
2: Dude, that's right. Oh my God.
1: So we played it. And we we went through it and it had a different, it had different lyrics and all this shit. And we played it. And I know Snake and I both walked away from rehearsal going, Yeah, that one's going on the scrap heap. And uh, but we liked the music. And so I was driving up to Snake's mom's house it was about a 45 minute drive and I used to always carry a pad and pen uh, with me but I forgot it at home and so I'm driving up there and all of a sudden all the lyrics just kept coming into my head so I, I got the first verse and I'm like okay and I repeat the first verse and the second verse came and I repeated the first verse and the second verse and then just kept going and going and I ran into Snake's mom's house <laughs> uh, hey mama snake do you have a pencil and a piece of paper and i kissed her on the cheek and she's like i have uh she had it was a um a pen that you do like um tailoring with I, what are they called i, I forget like uh like a chalk pen
0: right oh yeah the, yeah you write like clothes with to, to for the, for yeah, the, the scenes, yeah.
1: so she had that and I ripped off, like three paper towels off the kitchen roll, and I ran <laughs> up to the upstairs, bedroom, and closed the door, and just started writing all this, all this. And I go snake, I go. I think I got the verses for the song. <laughs> That's
2: great.
0: See, oh I God. bet you haven't thought about that in thirty years.
2: Have not. I'd be honest with you. What a great memory, man. So I crazy. haven't used brain that hard in thirty years.
1: That's for damn
2: sure. <laughs>
0: How about the the, the one song that I mentioned, which it kind of sticks out a little bit uh, as more of the poppier type tune, Can't Stand the Heartache.
1: It was originally called So Bad the Heartache. John uh, Bon Jovi suggested we change the title and just take a different approach to it. It was, uh, yeah, it was just something simple, something simple and poppy. And then Michael, it was Michael's idea to put the, uh, the acapella thing on because it was just starting with the big chord. But it was, no, it wasn't even starting with that. That was Michael's idea to just put the, uh, us singing in three-part harmony, and then boom into that. And yeah, it was super poppy, and it was funny. In some countries, people liked it a lot, and some countries they did
0: not. Mm-hmm.
2: It was one of those things where, at the time, we we're we we're I don't want to say on the fence about it, but we were just questioning when we were putting the album together what fit best with everything else, and that's never an easy thing mm-hmm. to do when you're when you're putting a record together and you've got you know, 20, 30 songs, and then you whittle it down to, uh, you know, 15 or 14, and then you end up putting 11 on the record. And, you know, there's always, someone's going to be butthurt one way or another. And um, it was one of those things that was, it was a bit on a fence. And we said, you know what? This will work well within the context of the whole thing. So that's why we put it on.
0: Yeah. One, one thing, once you got Sebastian's voice wrangled down into the stratosphere, uh, <laughs> he's, he's got some great... Um, just in intonations very ballsy at times you can go super clean at times so he actually sings the shit out of this song i I just listened to this record in its entirety for the first time in in a long time because nowadays everything's on shuffle but uh that song actually it 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 came across much better than i remembered because the vocal is very good and it is super catchy so um once again oh thanks yeah it's uh it's completely opposite of the next one though which is much more of a Almost a punky, dirty song. Piece of me.
2: Great song. And uh, before Rachel, should be add real quick? Great song that I couldn't stand when Rachel first wrote it.
0: Really? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep, couldn't stand it, man. And I, I, I you know what? It's songwriting is a weird thing. We're very, very sensitive about it. You know, like when you create something, you're very, very sensitive, especially at that age, mm-hmm. and especially when you're when you're doing something. That's leading to something bigger, or you hope at least to something bigger. So you're really, really critical. But the person who writes it, you know, this is their creation. They <laughs> yeah. came up with this from from nothing. You know what I mean? So it's really it's it's um, sacred, and you 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 become attached to it, and you're very protective of it. So if someone is even a little bit critical, it's going to get blown up. At least with me, it gets blown up in your mind. Like oh my god you're attacking my family <laughs> and so so with that song I I I guess I couldn't keep how I felt about it I I didn't like it but Rachel to his credit took that and was like I think that we should keep doing it though and and he was per- persistent in a good way because everybody else liked it and so it was like okay if I'm the only guy but I grew. To absolutely love it. I love playing it in a set I love which is one song one of the songs that we've done I guess basically every show <laughs> since since the song was written yeah and it just goes to show you that you know what you can be uh, blatantly wrong about something and I was I was I thought that it shouldn't at first I was like this isn't one a, well, a Skid Row song and there's no way and then you know it turns around turns out to be that I, I love it. And I'm so happy that it was written, and I'm so happy that he was persistent about it.
1: We were writing Making a Mess up uh, at Snake's house, at his mom's, in the room upstairs, and he had to take a piss. And I just started messing around, and I'm like, doo 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 And came up with that. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I'm gonna work with this when I get home. And then when I brought it, (laughs) Snake goes, I'm not playing any song that sounds like the and Monsters theme.
2: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I can't believe that you I was hoping you wouldn't remember that because
0: I wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, man. Uh, and that's the thing, too. I mean, it's it's, it's my second police uh, analogy of the, of the show, but something that they said when they started playing The Reunion uh, in 2007, they were talking about how the songs don't belong to the band anymore. They belong to the people. And once that song gets out there, it doesn't matter if you like it or not. The fans like it. It's a Skid Row classic. So it's cool that you like it, but even if you didn't, it's not up to you anymore. It's up to to playing what the fans enjoy and want to hear in a lot of ways.
2: Without a doubt. You yeah. have to always respect that, for sure. Uh, 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 that's something that's always been prominent in uh, uh, in our mindset when we, we're putting together a set list, for sure.
0: Next up is, is, is 18 in Life. Is this the biggest Skid Row song? Is it your biggest hit? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about how you how you wrote that one, because that's the one that you guys wrote together.
2: Well, that's your baby Well... It started out my my one of my brothers. I got four older bro. I have four older brothers, and the second oldest one his name is Rick. And when I was a kid, Rick went to Vietnam, and he was my hero, man. My uh, he was the he was raising me. My dad had left uh, earlier on when I was like two, so he was raising me. He was like the father figure, mm-hmm. and and. So when I was seven, he went off to Vietnam, came back a couple years later, and he wasn't, you know, physically injured, but he was just different as the, as anyone who experiences that is going to be, didn't have the same sort of life force that he had before he left. So that stayed with me and still stays with me to this day. So I had, you know, Ricky was a young boy and it was originally he had a heart of gold, oh. and the idea was. I brought this. I brought this to Rachel, and I was like, "Okay, I got this idea, and all I have is these two lines." And I said, "But this is what I'm. I'm thinking, and that is, let's tell the story of him uh, going to Vietnam, coming home, and and this, this whole story." Well, we were working on it and working on it, and nothing was working. It just wasn't clicking. We couldn't do the actual story justice through through the song. So we decided to take another turn and say, let's just create a story. Like, using that as influence, but let's create a story. Let's create this Ricky character. Who is this Ricky character? So Ricky went from was a young boy to having a heart of gold, went to had a heart of stone. Hmm. And they like, okay. And that right, came, if I could this. interject,
1: right then we knew the direction, which direction we were like, okay, we all know a kid like this. Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead.
2: No, no, you're absolutely right. And that's important because it changed the whole complexion of the song. It changed, the, you know, the path that we were taking with it. And from there, it kind of just snowballed, to be honest. Rachel was coming up with a lot of these very, you know, vivid and colorful, uh, imaginative lyrics. And when we got to the chorus, it was, uh, you know, we got we got a bunch of direction I should say a bunch of direction. Well, we got direction of, of what we were doing from John and Richie. Like, this is a great story. Now you need that, that thing that sums up the song, sums up this person, sums up the, 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 uh, what this whole thing is about. And, uh, and it's just, you know, again, a lot of times you're just, you just open the window and things come in. It's really not your mm. fault. It just comes from somewhere else. And you're just the vessel, you know? And, right. and that's, that's what happened with that particular song. I think that when you have those moments, they're indescribable. Where you kind of like those double take moments where you look at each other, like if as if you were in the Little Rascals, you know, like what, what? <laughs> <Right. laughs> like it's just it's incre- It's just an incredible feeling. Like you just, I don't know where that came from, but uh, thank God it did. And it, uh, was, and it
1: was the first time we really started working with metaphors, writing wise, like because the whole thing it's not like eighteen in life. A lot of people call it uh, eighteen to life. It's like no, it's eighteen and life, and they're like what's the and i was like he's trapped inside himself man he can't get away from the person that he is that's the whole sentence that he's doing you know but uh hey we just provide the canvas yeah and the paint you know oh, what i mean and everyone else does what they do
0: yeah and once again you know that's the beauty of a great song is it what does it mean well it means what does it mean to you what does it mean to the to the individual listener because i was 18 when this song was released and to me it was almost oh, wow. like 18 in life it's like you're 18 you got your whole life ahead of you you could either fuck it up or you can do anything you want like i, I didn't you know that's kind of it's just a life sentence that, that you're 18 and now you got your life sentence in front of you which you can do it right make it whatever you want to make it into kind of a thing you know
2: and that's where we were too i mean when the song was written we didn't have a record deal we didn't have we didn't even have the whole band together yet mm-hmm. i mean that, that song was written with matt in the band and demoed with him and so it was you know, we were working again we were working our asses off and and that's where we were at it, it made so much more sense because we're at such a young age that those lyrics were befitting of what what we, we were going through yeah. uh, in a way and, and,
0: what, and what your fan base so is going that, through too
2: yeah, I guess, you know and that's the thing again, you can't predict what's going to connect with people. You can only just you hope, do your best and and that connected with a lot of people, thankfully.
0: Was there any issue with Rattlesnake Shake? That issue, but it's very funny because Motley Crue, who put out Doctor Feelgood about 6 months after this record, also had a song called Rattlesnake Shake. Did they rip you off? Did you rip them off? Did you ever ask them?
2: Well, Aerosmith had a song as well. Oh, wow. <laughs>
0: There you go. You guys both ripped off Aerosmith then.
2: Yeah, and the, the, everyone
1: ripped off the blues song. I forget who did it, but it's it's old old blues title.
0: Gotcha. We another, have four hours. Another great uh, a, a bunch of lyrics from that. And Yours is much heavier than Motley Cruz too. So,
2: well, you know it's funny. You, you can't you can't copyright a song title, which which is I guess a good thing. And but those that song. We were spending a lot of time going back and forth to Philadelphia, working in the studio down there a little bit, and just you know going and partying down South Street and stuff like that. And so, when we started working on this on this song, you know, tricky little Vicky walks along South Street. It was like, okay, let's encapsulate like what we what we encounter when we're down there and make a you know just again a colorful story out of it.
0: And uh, the original Rattlesnake Shake by Fleetwood Mac in 1969.
2: Wow, you're a Googler.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a Googler. I'm a host. I, I gotta be. Like I said, I'm a technological whiz now after doing this show for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there another one before that, though? The, or was that the first one? Uh, that's the one I can find right now. They probably did it from somebody else too, right? So, let's. We already mentioned. Uh, let's see who wrote it. Uh, no, Peter Green wrote Rattlesnake Shake. So there might have been one earlier than that. But uh, that's a Fleetwood Mac one. So Um, we've talked a little bit, a lot about Youth Gone Wild. Anything else that you remember about the writing of the song?
2: Had different lyrics. Yep. Had completely different set of lyrics. Really? Yep. Uh, Let me see if I can think of it. Um, Oh, man. Yeah, it was more
1: as if we were rock stars. Mm. You know, about growing up and still being young and, and still having, just having too much, getting too much too soon. Type of thing, and it was John Bon Jovi said, "You know what? I love these lyrics, but it's not going to resonate with anyone that lives in Des Moines." And we're like, "All right, he goes start from scratch. Think of it as not as yourself as much as you guys and a bunch of other guys your age." And what
0: great advice, though, man! Like that's so cool that he that he gave you so much insight as to how to connect with the people because bon jovi much like his hero i'm assuming bruce springsteen they they come across so every man and like you know we 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 believe in you bruce we believe in you john and this is a perfect example of 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 the same thing
2: without a doubt and again like that goes back to what we were talking about earlier like just the great coaching you know like we'll talk about having an invaluable asset by, by someone who's just gonna sit there and tell you the honest truth, based on their experience and whatever wisdom they may have at that particular point in their career, and he was obviously, him and Richie and the band were obviously hugely successful, still are, and for him to you know be able to sit there and and, and give us that advice and, and of which we could utilize, it was you can't put a, a price on that man. I mean, it, it, it it's helped. a mentor, yeah, it, yeah. And it helps. It obviously helps shape who, what the band became, and where sure. we are today. I,
0: I, I, we always. I don't think I've ever gotten them in, in correct order, but I just remember screaming. We live our lives on trial. We walk the endless mile. They call us problem child. I know the words, but not. No one ever got them right. Like they're always out of order. Or whatever it was, <laughs> when everyone's screaming it. at Georgie's, for example. So uh, I'm still not sure if I ever got it right, but it sure was fun screaming out those, uh, that chorus.
2: Why don't you say it correctly next time? Instead you're boogie Canadian. In so- Jeez, <laughs> could I, I could have Googled it,
0: I guess, right? Jeez, the, the, the amount of disrespect I just showed to my guests here. Um,
1: yeah, it's unbelievable. You're <laughs> out for a rip, bud. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Going out for a rippy. Hey, I heard that uh, Skid Row, man. Youth gone crazy. It's f- hey, great, man. Hey man, let's go get dickered. <laughs> As we get to the towards the end here, you got here. I am another super heavy song with, with some great lyrics. Uh, she broke a million hearts in Second Avenue with German cigarettes and designer attitude. What the hell did you know about German cigarettes uh, in 1988, uh, Rachel Bolan? Uh,
1: I knew they had them in Germany. <laughs> 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 I, it just uh, i guess it's just watching foreign films i don't know I'm, I'm trying to think of the lyrics to that song we haven't done it in so long
0: did you ever think about i know that uh that baz is doing the the, the album in its entirety did you ever think of doing anything like that or, or um just leave it up to him to do? yeah it?
1: we did we did it, it's just and we still may but it, it's just one of those things where we have momentum with new stuff Mm -hmm. and Z's only in the band for three years. And we don't want to isolate it to such a small thing, you know, small. I mean, don't want to just do the first album. We want to do other songs that people want to hear, you know, and, and, uh, so that's kind of where we're at right now, but there's always time to do something. You like should that.
0: put a "Here I Am" in there or a making a mess if you haven't played it in a while. I bet your people would dig
2: that. Oh, we play "Making a Mess" like basically every show.
0: Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, but um, "Here I Am," you know, the, the, when we were writing this first record, there's so many different places where, where 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 Rachel lived and where I lived. So that particular one, he was like on his third floor walk up apartment right was that the one in long branch maybe or yeah right
1: from the train station
2: right and so like we would live in different places and that particular song was written in that particular place and i remember we were just sitting in your living room and it was not that it was sparse but we didn't have a lot of money and but i remember it was such a great feeling because i was like rachel wrote that riff i was like dude like, that's a really cool riff. Like me, I would have added about 75 more notes in that riff because that's what I do as an idiot guitar player. Rachel, being a bass player, doesn't look at the guitar like like I look at it. He looks at it just, it's a vehicle. And me, i, I it's a vehicle, but I'm, I get to be very mathematical sometimes about it, which is not a good thing. And he just goes straight from a feel standpoint. So he's like, check out this riff. And I was like dude, this is like a great riff. Like, I, I'm i proud to play this. And, and then, again, we're oh in a
1: piece of me riff. No, just kidding.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were in that mode. We were in that mode of, of like this just this, this color, colorful, very uh, streetwise, lyrical storytelling. And that's that goes right along like with the lyrics with Rattlesnake or, or with Sweet Little Sister.
0: And once again, that's, that's another uh, song that I think gets tied together so well with the vocals, and it's just, just, it's just a great tune. And then Making a Mess comes up, su- a little bit of a heavier tune. You talked about writing that. Now, this one also has a credit from Sebastian Bach, the only one on the record. Do you remember what Baz contributed to this?
2: I don't.
1: He was Do you in you? the room. He what? He was in the room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how I, I one of our songs has a, a, a writing credit to the drummer Frank. I'm like, what? what did Frank do Uh-oh. on this? None of us, including Frank, can remember why he's on it. So maybe, just... <laughs> 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 so, um, uh, but making a yeah, mess. Yeah, I,
2: rem- I don't honestly, I, I don't remember. It was it, again. It was it was tough to. There's to certain things that stand out. You know, thirty some odd years ago. And I can't recall that though, to be honest.
0: How about uh, another huge hit for you guys? I remember you, um, which on every, you know, quote unquote eighties, heavy rock, hard rock ballad compilations to the end of time, that's going to be on there. Anything behind that one snake?
2: There's a couple different things, interestingly enough. So I started with the strumming thing. It's just a G and a C chord. And at the time, Scotty, Robert Fuso and I were living at my mom's house and Scotty was living was sleep slept in an upstairs bedroom. And so I had this thing, and I go up to the bedroom and I start playing it for him. I'm like, yeah, check out this thing. And I'd lead up, I go, it's kind of like a Springsteen thing or a John Cougar thing. And wasn't thinking about just it was just writing. It wasn't specifically for anything. So Rachel and I, as we often did if there was an idea, whether it was for Skid Row or not, we'd pursue it because you're exercising that muscle. And so we started writing it and we're writing these lyrics and uh, we were in a room and it was raining outside and we are like, okay, we need a first line for the song. We're like, what's, how do we set the stage? And all of a sudden we go, well, it's raining. You know, somehow we came up, woke up to the sound of pouring rain. So, okay. Now we've got a great first line. What happens next? And this is what Rachel and I always go through. Okay, what's the what's the what's the song about? What's the starting point? And then that should that sort of dictates where we're going, much as it did with 18 in life. So we get to the chorus, and now this is maybe a week or two later or whatever it might have been. Now we're not in the green room anymore. We're out on the back porch of his mom's house with a couple acoustic guitars. So I wrote one set of lyrics for the chorus. He wrote another set of lyrics for the chorus. We're going back and forth about what lyrics we should use. And of course, I'm defending mine and he's defending his. <laughs> so we sit there and go, well, let's try to put them together a- as one thing. That doesn't work. So then we we found something that was right in front of us the whole time. Well, why don't we use both of them side by side? Mm-hmm. And it was like light bulb, bam, boom. So then we finished the song. And to be quite honest, we don't think much of it. We don't think it's a Skid Row song. So we bring it into rehearsal just to jam it. And we still don't think it's a Skid Row song. But the rest of the band is like, this is a great song. And Rachel and I are like, man, we don't see it. And Scott and Doc were there at one point. And they both said, if this song isn't on the first record, then we don't manage you anymore. And we were like, <laughs> Rachel and I looked at each other like, well, okay. Still... It didn't register with us yet. And I'll tell you, when it, when, uh, the more we played it, the more, me personally, I liked it. But it still wasn't knocking my socks off. It was when we went in the studio and did it, and, and what Michael Wagner was able to pull out of Sebastian. Mm. And the way Michael produced that record, uh, that particular song, from all of our standpoints. What he was able to pull out of Scotty's solo, Sebastian's vocals, and the sound of the song captured what the essence was and so uh so accurately that it was then it became uh undeniably a skid rose but at first it was you know if it was if it had been solely up to racial and, and and i uh, that wouldn't have made it unbelievable and ends up being i know right
0: ends up being a, said an all-time classic <laughs>
2: <Go> <laughs> to show you. i'm polish Let's
0: just say it all. <laughs> Last song on the record, uh, Midnight, uh, of course, with the little uh, denouement of Tornado. It's, uh, it, it's funny. The what? It's, uh, a denouement. That's a French word. Canadian.
2: That's that's a a weird word for a pro wrestler. What?
0: (laughs) Even worse, a pro wrestler and a musician. I'm extra dumb.
2: Yeah, what's what's going on here? (laughs) I don't think anyone ever accused you of being a musician, but go ahead.
0: ahead. (laughs) Uh, The denouement is the final part of a play, movie, or narrative in which the strands of the plot are drawn together and matters are explained or resolved, or the climax of a chain of events.
2: Do you have dictionary toilet paper or something?
0: (laughs) I have that tattooed on my ball bag, actually. You want to come see it?
2: (laughs) Snake drops serendipitous. You drop that. I'm like, I feel really dumb over here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Cat.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> put a really small tattoo on that sack of yours
0: <laughs> uh, midnight uh, much more of a, of a kind of a classic 80s sound it actually reminds me a lot of danger from shout out the devil where you forget the song because no one really talks about it much and then when you hear it it's, like, it's a pretty killer way to end off a record and then i love kind of the little uh, the little ending uh, instrumental thing there what was the story behind that
2: well we used to open up with that song and um it was written with the uh with Matt, our first singer. This and is probably our, even new snake. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so and it was so it had if if it feels a little bit different than the, than some of the other stuff on the record, that that's probably the reason why, because it's probably it's the oldest song that's on that record. And mm-hmm. it was again, I think that was also one of those songs where we were iffy about not iffy, but we were questioning whether it should be on the record or not. But it seemed to bookend pretty well. Mm-hmm. With everything kind of in between it. And, but we opened up with that for so long. It just, when I wrote the riff, I, I heard it as an opening song. Opening tune, yeah. And, and then, uh, but Race, you tell the story about Tornado. Um,
1: um, I just had a riff that I threw up the guys in the garage and we were messing with it. And Snake and I planned to write a song around it, but we just couldn't find where the song was. So we're like, ah, we'll leave it and then uh, maybe stick it. Uh, you know, just what it does as a fade out on the record. Well, it didn't have a title and it wasn't going to until while we were recording it, all the power went out in the studio because of tornadoes in the area. <laughs> and we like, we went back to our rooms cause it was connected. The hotel was connected to the studio and I'm looking out, you know, I'm a kid from Jersey. I, I I'm used to just dead bodies watching up on shore. I'm not used <laughs> to seeing tornadoes come out of the sky. And <laughs> And you could see, you could see for miles, like, because it was nothing but cornfield like, for miles and miles and miles. And way in the distance, the, the sky turned like a purplish black color, and this funnel came down. And I was like, What what am I supposed to do? <laughs> How am I gonna get here? And what the hell am I supposed to do if it does? So, but then it got stuck back up into the sky and all the power came back on. It. And I went downstairs, I go, we should call that Tornado. And it stuck.
2: So, <laughs> I used to and then m- the, idea, the idea of that, too, was we put it there, and then we had the idea to open up the next record with that riff oh, as, a, as a song. And, that's right. And yet we still, when it came time to do it, it just wasn't where we were at, and we, we couldn't make that come to fruition but uh that was that was the idea when we were done doing the record but we were in a different headspace when we started making Slave. so I always
0: love that little bit because uh, when you used to make mixtapes on cassettes and if a song ended with only like a minute left and you wanted to fill up the tape because I hated having like a minute or two minutes of empty tape I would always stick tornado at the end of it because it always (laughs) is a great way to fade out of of the of the cassette (laughs) <laughs> nice. Oh, that's funny I love that, that's great <laughs> Stuff that kids these days will never know As we wind down here I mean, you know, once again This amazing record, 5 million albums sold in the States alone Which is a feat that you'll probably never see again from any band Just the way that things are um, When you look back on it What are your overall impressions about the record And, and, and playing these songs in this day and age?
2: I think that I have. I'm so proud of what we did. All of us, everybody, everybody in the band at that particular time. I'm so proud of what we were able to accomplish. It's far above and beyond even what what we what we hoped for, and and the fact that people still like yourself, like the fact that we're even doing, we're talking about it right now, some 30 years later. Uh, nothing but humility and and gratitude and pride and. As much as I could sit here and say I wish I played that guitar differently or I wish this was different, the truth is is that I'm glad that we didn't change anything, and I'm glad that it exists as it does, because you can't mess with with what happened and what that record became and, and what it means to people. And had anything been different, those emotions may have been different too. So uh, it's one of those things that You know, from my standpoint, I look back and I smile and I'm so thankful to be to have been a part of it. And something that uh, we created could stand the test of time the way it does is very humbling. And, uh, you know, I've always said this, the fact that when we go out and we play these songs, when you see an audience reciting those lyrics back to you, and you see in the passion that they're putting into it when they're when they're singing those lyrics and when their hands are in the air, you, there's nothing that comes close to that, man. Nothing. And so, I'm I'm honored to have been you know a part of of creating that.
1: It uh, we're talking three decades ago, and that scene, when you're on this side of it, it seems like you know just a flash went by, mm. and, right. Because I mean, like talking about it, is we're remembering just about every single moment of making the record before there was even a record to make, you know, it's just meeting Snake and getting together and writing songs and auditioning band members and whatnot and changing band members. And it, it to come out with something that was as special to millions of people as it was to us is just the most incredible feeling that you could ever feel in the world. It's like, I guess it's like, you know, I don't have any kids. But if I had a kid and say he went and became president or something like that, she's <laughs> like, no, I did something really good for this to happen. And I'm really proud of him. So that's, that's kind of what my, my take on the whole thing is. And just, just to, like snake said, to even talk about this and talk about it with you and, and, uh, you know, people celebrating it and a special, you know, digital, uh, you know, remaster of it came out and whatnot. It's like, wow, this is stuff you only heard about happening to other bands. Mm. You know, it's, it's a pretty cool thing, man. And, and um, yeah, I wouldn't change anything on that record.
0: What's your favorite song on the album, man?
1: Probably, uh, probably 18. Mm. I mean that, that, yeah. And youth would probably be my two favorites snake
2: I think it's youth and only because it was it was our introduction to this world it was it was uh, the first thing that we ever released and, and that's at the stage for literally our whole career so I would think that
0: got it uh, and just for you guys they call us problem child we spend our lives on trial we walk an endless mile we are the youth gone wild I got it I nailed it
2: Hey, look at wow.
0: you. Wow. <laughs> That's what you get. you Again, the Googler. <laughs> the Googler. Uh, <laughs> and, and last question for you. Uh, you guys hate the reunion question, but when are you reuniting with Elwood Francis?
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> it's very soon.
1: <laughs>
0: you guys are thinking, oh, come on. You're going to ask that question? Elwood. Great. Prunella scales, Elwood. baby. Oh, huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. It's so funny. I go back
1: and forth with Elwood all the time on uh, Instagram. He's hilarious.
0: The first time I ever met Snake at a at a little uh, little high school gym in Japan, you were with Elwood.
2: Yes, we were, man. We took two yeah. different trains in two hours to get there. It was worth <laughs> every minute of it until you got in the ring.
0: It's like <laughs> you thought you were going back to work at the guitar store.
2: I really did. As a matter of fact,
0: I would have preferred that. Oh, man. Well, uh, guys, thank you very much. And like I said, it's it's a great moment in time in rock and roll. You guys are a great rock and roll band. And uh, anybody who remembers this record, go back and listen to it. If you haven't heard it for a while, go back and listen to it. Just don't look at the back cover at any pictures of Snake Sable because you might puke. (laughs)
2: You know, I'm actually going to be really nice to you, and thank you so. much. In all honesty, thank you so much for having this conversation with us. It was it was very very cool to relive a bunch of this stuff because uh, there there were things that I had forgotten about, and it was really cool to to relive those moments. So thanks for for uh, doing this for
0: yeah, us. Yeah, and all in all, like I said, all seriousness, it was awesome to hear these songs and uh, great talking to you guys, and hopefully we'll get a chance to rock together again soon. Thanks, Hell buddy. Yeah. Cheers, thanks. guys. dude. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks to Rachel and Snake from Skid Row. They're hitting the road September 25th. They're doing a handful of dates in the States before heading to Europe in November. All the dates and details at skidrow.com and chrisjerichocruise.com has all the details on the upcoming Chris Jericho Rock and Wrestling Rager at C Part 2. We set sail January 20th, and we want you to be there too, along with this killer lineup of talent featuring the AEW uh, top, top guys fozzy rick flair nwo jake the snake roberts light the torch kick axe the guerrero family vicky eddie shawl uh fozzy like i said killer queens dave spivak project Jared James Nichols, DDP is going to be there. The Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, Cody, Brandy Rose, Adam Page, The Hangman, SCU, MJF, uh, Paranormal Stories from Beyond the Darkness. So much going on at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. And as we stand right now, we literally have 19 cabins left. You don't want to be left out on this, man. It's going to be the vacation of a lifetime. And we still have more to announce. So go get one of those final 19 cabins now. And go to FozzyRock.com and come see us. The Unleashed in the West tour is off and running. We had a sold-out show last night. In denver uh, great time great to be back on stage we're hitting colorado springs tonight at the sunshine theater sunshine sunshine theater september 7th grand junction colorado at the mesa theater september 8th salt lake city at the royal uh we're going all throughout nevada california the arizona texas and, uh, mississippi uh, georgia don't forget uh, september 14th iron maiden at the bank of california stadium that one's sold out sacramento on the 13th at the ace of spades So many gigs that we want to play uh, for you. September 19th, Tempe, Arizona. September 20th, Tucson. Come see us, FozzyRock.com. And don't forget to pick up a VIP package, uh, meet and greet VIP package. We play a little mini concert just for you guys. Rich and I were working out the set list today. FozzyRock.com. Hang with Fozzy before the show uh, and come have a great time. Speaking of great times, we want to have a great weekend. Coming up Wednesday, he's the hottest act in AEW. I'm talking about the Luchasaurus. He and Jungle Boy and Marco Stunt, the Jurassic Express, tore down the house against SCU at All Out Chicago Saturday night. I talked about that earlier this week in my uh, All Out uh, review. And if you didn't know his name, you should and will now. You'll discover what the great Dusty Rhodes had to do with his gimmick. He's also basically like a Rhodes Scholar. No kidding. Luchasaurus is here on Wednesday. Until then, have a great weekend. Come see Fozzie if you're in Colorado. Stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big Game Boy! They call us Problem Child, we live our lives on trial, we want the endless mile, we are the youth gone wild!